Hey y'all, thank y'all for tuning in to Black Girl True Crime. I'm your host, Kay Simone, and welcome back for another episode. October 3rd of 2002, Angela Dawson, her husband Carnell, and their five children were sound asleep in the Baltimore residence when a Molotov cocktail was launched through their downstairs kitchen window. Angela rushed to put out the fire while Carnell called the police, but this was not the first attack against their family, and it surely wasn't the last. They were in a fight against gang violence and drug activity and rightfully felt that they shouldn't have to flee because the police couldn't do their damn jobs correctly. After the October 3rd attack, they would only have 13 more days to live before their home went up in flames, claiming their lives. The world is fucked up, y'all. Let's talk about it. All right, y'all, let's go ahead and get into this case. I really wanted to have it published before y'all get up for work in the morning, so y'all got something to listen to. Now, I was conflicted on telling y'all about the murder of Erica Green or Emma Grace Cole, but I came across the story of the Dawson's a couple days ago, and I just, I couldn't let it go. I became fixated. If I haven't mentioned this before, I like to comb through a section of Wiki called Murdered African American Peoples. Y'all should check it out, Um, but don't use that as your primary source, all right? I repeat that. Do not use Wikipedia as your primary source. After I find, you know, a story, then I hit the ground running on research. Now, the murderer in this case is a Black man named Darrell Brooks. I googled him and the first articles that popped up was about a Negro up in Waukesha who was responsible for the Christmas parade attack. And I'm thinking like, yeah, it it makes sense why that would make headlines. But I kept scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. Nothing popped for the Dawson family. And now this case is so horrific, y'all. It should not be forgotten. And I'm going to take y'all back to the early 2000s and to the neighborhood of Oliver, located on the east side of Baltimore, Maryland. This is one of those cases where we have to talk about where we're at before we get into what went down. As of a couple days ago, a 16-year-old child has been identified as the first homicide victim of 2024. It's safe to say Baltimore ain't no cakewalk and has a history of drugs, gangs, and violence. But on the flip side, this is a city where the communities get dragged more than the corrupt police departments in charge of protecting and serving them. Freddie Gray, the Gun Trace Task Force, and investigations by the Department of Justice into the corruption of the BCPD shows a routine history of violations of the constitutional rights of Baltimore citizens and discrimination against African Americans. The relationship between the residents and the police is damaged due to these issues, and there's a lack of trust dating back way before the Dawson family murders of 2002. In April of 2002, Baltimore City launched its Believe campaign to combat drug trafficking with hopes of encouraging Baltimoreans to participate in reporting illegal drug activities in their neighborhood. The belief was that the city could overcome issues with drugs if everyone did at least one thing to fight it. Mind you, this was during a time where one in 10 adults were suffering from drug addiction. This sounds great on paper, but the city didn't have the means to protect the do-good citizens who reported the activity. 
It is alleged that this campaign was launched in specific areas with violent retaliatory drug culture where lack of witness cooperation was valid due to fear of retaliation. This allegation is supported by the lack of protection extended to the Dawson family. So a little bit about them. Angela and Carnell Dawson were living at 1401 East Preston Street in Baltimore, Maryland. Angela reported drug activity that was going on, and this wasn't just in the neighborhood somewhere, y'all, or up the damn street. This was on her stoop, like on her corner where Carnell and her paid the goddamn bills. And this is where they were raising their children, LaWanda Ortiz, Juan Ortiz, Carnell Dawson Jr., Kevin Dawson, and Keith Dawson. Between January 1st, 2000 and October 16th of 2002, a total of 109 calls were made by Angela and Carnell to 911 or the non-emergent number. At first, the calls that were going out just basically were about drug dealers and how they were trying to get them off their corner and out of the eyesight of their children. These are very small children we are talking about but that quickly transformed to calls reporting harassment, and this went on for months and months leading up to their deaths. And now I'm just going to get y'all, you know, a little bit of background on who these people really are. So Angela Maria Harrington Dawson was born to Donnell Harrington Golden and John Harrington Sr. April 11th, 1966 in Baltimore, Maryland. Angela was the oldest of four children, and she was educated in the Baltimore City public school system. Angela's brother, John Harrington Jr., said that she was a force, y'all, protective and supportive. They grew up on the east side of Baltimore, and as a child, he felt safe from getting picked on because he knew he had his sister, Angela. By all accounts, she played the role of a mother bear well before she had her first child, and she stood on fucking business. Her sister, Davida Golden, recalled them being older and Angela witnessing a man mistreat her. She stood up for her in that very moment, like there was no grass growing underneath her feet when it came to bullshit. Angela dropped out of high school at the age of 19 to raise her firstborn, Lakeisha Bowell, then went on to have LaWanda and Juan with another man before moving to Severn, Maryland, where she met the love of her life, Carnell Dawson. Carnell Dawson was born to Odessa Dawson Dumas on April 13, 1959, in Bristow, Oklahoma. Carnell was the fourth child of five and the eldest son. He was an active member of the choir, Sunday school, and other youth organizations. Carnell was also educated in the Bristow, Oklahoma public school system, where he participated in football, basketball, and was a member of the school choir. Baby Carnell is said to have been a jack of all trades. They said this man was charming and a comedian, and just like Angela, he was wise uh, beyond his years, even at a young age, and he was a protector. He served in the United States Army National Guard in Oklahoma for about seven years, when he was around the age of 20, he survived being shot with a sawed-off shotgun that misfired. Several years after that, his younger brother Mark was shot to death in July of 1991. It was at Mark's funeral where he asked his sister if he could move in with her for a fresh start. And by this time, he had already had two children and he was ready to settle down. So off to Severn, Maryland, he went. Baby, they said Carnell laid eyes on Angela on a sunny September day, and from there, they called each other Car and Angel. They got married on New Year's Eve, 
and they merged their families together and moved to a little row house on the corner of East Preston and North Eden in the East Baltimore neighborhood of Oliver. And it was a rough neighborhood and also acquired the nickname Badlands. And many of the homes were boarded up, separated by empty lots, uh, with, and they said a lot of the area was overgrown. And you could always see police cars doing routine, you know, up and down the street, circling the block one after another. Rent was a couple hundred dollars, and they made different changes to the row house, like installing carpet and an entertainment system. They were really trying to make their home theirs, as they should have. All the time they were together, they were known as happy and a fun family. Neighbors and friends said that the children were always happy, y'all, like always, and they always looked after each other. 14-year-old Lawanda Ortiz was born on September 26, 1988. She was the artist of the family and loved music and cartoons. 12-year-old Juan Ortiz is described as a model student, and he was a part of the fifth grade reading program and enjoyed reading books to the younger children. 10-year-old Carnell Jr. is known as Car Car, and he is the know-it-all of the family, and he enjoyed doing the backflips. Y'all know I'm a mother of two, right? My eight-year-old son, he is a flipping somebody. That boy can't walk in a straight line for more than a few minutes before trying to do a somersault or some type of flip. So it was easy to visualize Car Car. Now, the twins, nine-year-old Keith and Kevin, when Angela first went into labor, she didn't know that she was pregnant with twins. Keith was hiding behind Kevin. Now, due to issues with labor, Keith had some developmental issues, but both of these babies were extraordinary. All of the Dawson children were extraordinary beings, y'all. Keith left to read and is said to be the quiet but loving child. Kevin took after Carnell Sr. and adopted his humor and charm. Summers were spent hosting barbecues, riding their bikes, and playing games. Now, this row house at 1401 East Preston Street, it is said that this house was filled with love. Filled to the goddamn brim. Angela worked on and off, but primarily took up the role as homemaker, and Carnell did construction work. His co-worker said that he always talked about his family, and they called him country because he had this thick-ass Oklahoma twang and a love for fishing. Up until their move to Preston Street, all of Carnell's jobs were temporary, but he finally found stable work at RWC, where he worked refurbishing an elementary school. His shifts were from 2.30 p.m. to 11.30 p.m., and his co-workers would pick him up and drop him off. Over time, these co-workers would notice that there were men on the corner of the Dawson's house that gave them hard stares. And these were like random ass men that they didn't even know. The drug dealers that the Dawson's started having issues with would sit on her stoop, promote crack prices, and sometimes hide drug, drugs around the property. When the Dawson's started calling the BCPD for help, either they did not respond to the calls quickly or they failed to respond at all. When the BCPD did respond, the officers would go directly up to Angela and Carnell's home, and this showed the whole neighborhood and the drug dealers exactly where they lived. This is when the family began to receive threats and were attacked on several different occasions. The first documented report by the Dawson's was March 21st of 2001. Carnell tried to chase away a dealer from the corner and told police that a man named Joseph Bullock was standing in front of his house selling $10 bags of drugs. 
Carnell asked Joseph to leave because he didn't want his kids to see that. And Joseph told him, you can't make me leave this corner, end quote. And then Joseph reached for his waistband as if to pull out a gun on Carnell. He was then arrested and was charged with second-degree assault. Joseph was given a four-year probation sentence for this incident. Now, what I didn't like was that there are some articles that will highlight that Carnell and Angela had a criminal history themselves. But y'all, I'm not going to hold y'all. I find that absolutely disgusting. You can't hear of a traumatic story as the Dawson's, then think, okay, let me just go look up their record. Y'all do not be fooled. That is a method used to discredit them as victims. And there's no space for that shit on Black Girl True Crime Podcast. If you want to know deep about them, you can definitely go Google it as I did. Now, because their criminal past was used in these articles about their deaths, people use that as a way to make them look as if they were a part of the problem and you know not on the other side of the fence from it. One neighbor who identified himself as Mr. P claimed that Angela was calling the cops on people who didn't even do anything. This man said, and I quote, we'd sit on our stoop and we might have a beer or two and we're sometimes loud, but there's no drug activities, end quote. On August 23rd of 2002, Angela called to report a man named John L. Henry. She said, Henry wrote bitch on my wall. I stayed outside along with my child until I could get the words off the wall. John Henry came across the street bragging about how he wrote bitch and said, bitch, that's why you got to clean the wall and I did it, bitch. Like, damn, how many fucking times you gonna call me a bitch? That's what would have irked me. Now, that's when John Henry cold cocked me. End quote. That's what she said. He cold cocked her. Now, I didn't know what cold cock meant, so I looked it up. That means to hit somebody in the head and knock them out. So he assaulted her. Henry was 18 years old at the time and lived across the street with his uncle, Mr. P, the uncle who said Angela was calling the cops for no reason. On August 25th, Angela contacted the authorities to let them know that while her husband Carnell and their sons were in the kitchen cooking, a brick was thrown through the kitchen window. When it shattered, glass went into their son's eye. The second time a brick was thrown, it was September 4th. Angela contacted the authorities and said, my husband had just got home from work. We sat down to talk about our day and then decided to pop in a VCR tape when a brick came through the front living room window. The brick struck me in the back, and I watched John L. Henry running across the street. On October 1st, Carnell contact contacted authorities because John Henry and several other men surrounded their home. He said, and I quote, I'm going to court tomorrow for a guy that busted my windows and all, and then they let him out of jail. He's got reinforcements, and the drug dealers are all around my house. My wife is terrified, and she's crying. They are all around my house trying to do something to my kids and my wife. They said they were going to bust up our windows and shoot up our house. So I do believe there was another person besides John Henry that got arrested and released by the authorities. Because the very next day, John Henry was arrested and he too was released the very same day. In the intro, I mentioned how a Molotov cocktail was launched through the kitchen window Angela called 911 to report the incident and said, my husband and I gathered up our babies and led them to safety. Before getting out, we experienced choking from the smoke and could hardly see to get out the door. 
The heat was very intense. I got water trying to put out the fire, but the more I threw the water, the more the fire flared. I finally got the fire under control and went out, went outside with my family. It was a setup to kill everyone in the home, to blow my family up. The man who threw the Molotov, but the man who threw the Molotov cocktail wasn't John Henry, y'all. Mind y'all, I forgot to say it in quote, my bad. So yeah, the man who threw that Molotov cocktail wasn't John Henry. It was a man named Darrell Brooks. Darrell Brooks and the Dawsons were neighbors. Now, up until October, he had lived next to none other than John Henry. So it was Darrell Brooks and John Henry, Mr. P. They lived on the other side of the street. Up until that moment, Darrell's name was never mentioned in the phone calls to the police, but he was playing an active role in the group that often sat on their stoop and on the you know corner selling drugs. He was 21 years old at the time, and he was the lookout. Side note, I will never believe the folks who spoke out and said that they never saw anything going on outside the Dawson's house. P made it seem as if Angela was calling the cops on him for no reason at all when his nephew was a part of the threats and the vandalization of the Dawson's property and home, and they lived right next to Darrell Brooks, the man who ends up killing the Dawson's. Random people will call um, Angela and Carnell liars, and they said, well, it's never happened to us. Meanwhile, they live down the road and around the goddamn corner. Of course, it ain't happened to you because you're not living on the at the Dawson's residence. Now, quotes from other nearby neighbors directly contradicted those trying to discredit the Dawson's. 18-year-old Marcus Trusty said that the drug dealer said if Angela ever came out onto the streets, they were going to kill her. Mm. Now, let's go ahead and get into Darrell Brooks' background. Darrell Brooks had a rough childhood, and his background is quite sad. Darrell was born on June 10th, 1981. Abuse was common in the household, and he was once taken away from his mother, who at the time worked as a nurse, and she was suffering from drug addiction. It was said that when he was five years old, she beat him so badly that the state had no other choice but to intervene, and the situation was a result of him not doing his homework. So he was taken away for some time, but he was eventually returned back to his mother, and then they began to work on having a good relationship. At the age of 12, his brother Jeffrey was shot to death, and this was a loss that Darrell had a very hard time coping with. And so he started to take antidepressants and was placed in schools for children with emotional problems. Trevira Jefferson is a friend of Darrell's, and she said that his upbringing made him impressionable to the older boys who would tell him to steal and fight. And Darrell, just wanting to find somewhere where he was accepted, he did as he was told. This was around the time that he met a man named Robert Stokes, and they became friends. Robert Stokes at the time was a Democratic activist who ran a community outreach office in Oliver. He really put Darrell on too, and he tried to get him off the streets and the, and away from the bad influences um, in his life. Darrell started doing odd jobs for money, and he began passing out flyers for food and summer pool passes. He went on to volunteer his time at a rec center. In the late 90s, Robert put Darrell on so goddamn good, y'all, he got him a part-time gig as a staff member for the Baltimore City Council. And Darrell, at the time, he was well-liked, and people said he was a little comedian who sometimes played pranks on the co-sponsors. Darrell's dream was to join the Coast Guard, and he was crushed when he was rejected.
One day, Robert Stokes saw him at a bus stop when he should have been at work, and he had actually stopped going from for some time before he eventually was fired from his position. When Darrell was 17 years old, he was charged with robbery and assault for holding a BB gun to an 11-year-old boy's head and demanding his mountain bike. In February and June of 2002, he was charged with cocaine possession. The first time was a block from where the Dawsons lived. The second time was two blocks away. Now, what led uh, to Darrell finally being placed on probation was him being charged with car theft in March. He received a two-year probation sentence, then turned around and got caught stealing cars a second time in May. And at this point, he should have been behind bars, but state probation authorities didn't know of the arrest. They dropped the goddamn ball, y'all. It was alleged that the probation officer was never in contact with him to begin with, which was why he was free to firebomb the Dawson's house on October 3rd and October 16th. The Dawson family spent the first few days after the fire attack inside the house and the kids were pulled from school. Now, Carnell routinely called Angela to check on them every two hours while he was at work. Laura Seidel worked as a psychiatrist at the time and was called to the Dawson residence to make sure that the kids were okay. They were scared but were happy that the kitchen was fucked up because that meant that they could eat out and since they were out of school, they could play and watch movies. The last conversation Angela's sister Donnell had with her, Angela said clearly, I can't take this no more. I don't want to move. I have to move, end quote. In response to the Molotov cocktail incident on October 3rd, the Baltimore City Police Department promised to give the Dawsons increased protection by placing them on a special attention list, Air Bunnies. Also, it is often reported that the BCPD offered to relocate the Dawson family and were refused. A lot of different articles say this, um, you know, as a way to say, oh, well, they tried to help them, but they didn't take it. See, Carnell believed that running from the issue would, wouldn't fix the problem. What was the purpose of this whole belief campaign and, you know, see something, say something, when you got officers walking up to my goddamn door and y'all aren't even coming to the incidents that we're reporting? And also what isn't talked about a lot is that after October 3rd, Angela and Carnell decided to leave. But the office that offered them the option to move never followed up with the necessary referrals and paperwork. Hmm. The family of Angela and Carnell believed that they were, they were never on a special attention list, nor were they followed up with the process for the state attorney's witness protection program. And I'm going to get into the situation of October 16th, so major trigger warning. On the morning of October 16th, Carnell was dropped off by his co-workers around 12.30 a.m. A friend had loaned him about 45 bucks so he could get a Colt 45 and relax when he got home. When their car pulled up uh, to the corner of Eden and Preston, two men could be seen standing on the corner, and Carnell's friend said, don't say anything to them, country. Some hours before this, Angela had gotten into it with Darrell Brooks for the first time, and he told her that she needed to mind her business. He said, you know what happens to snitches, end quote. Carnell walked right by them and entered his residence. Now around 2.18 a.m., Darrell Brooks walked to the Dawson residence and kicked in their front door while they slept. 
With him was a pickle jar filled with gasoline, and he quickly doused the lower level and staircase, knowing that the only way to escape the house would be from the second and third levels of the home. Other reports say that he threw another Molotov cocktail, but most reports say he strategically doused the staircase in gasoline. The house immediately went up in flames, and fire was coming out of almost every window in a short amount of time. Let me remind y'all that Lawanda is 14 years old, Juan is 12, Carnell Jr. is 10, and the twins, Kevin and Keith, are 9. They were only 9 years old, y'all. Angela had once told Darrell's mother that Daryl uh, Darrell wasn't like the others because he had never disrespected her. Angela had no problems with this man and never once suspected that he was behind the, the attacks. Neighbors said that Angela's screams ripped through the entire fucking block. She could be heard screaming, God, please help me. Help me get my children out, end quote. Around 2.25 a.m., neighbors began calling 911 to report the fire. One woman told a dispatcher, oh my God, get a fire company out here quick. There are five little children in this house. Eden in Preston Street is a murder scene. There are five little babies in that house, end quote. It only took the fire department three minutes to arrive on scene, and Baltimore City Assistant Fire Chief Roman Clark observed Carnell's body in the street. He jumped from the third floor window. Henry Rogers, who did maintenance work on the house, said that the family did not have a chance once Brooks set the home alight. The fire just caught on too quick, he said. The flames were so out of control and there were no signs of life after Angela stopped screaming, so people were surprised when firefighters tried to make entry on the side of the house. Entry failed due to blockage by a door that had fallen into the stairwell, so it was decided to climb through one of the windows, so the men used a 25-foot ladder to get to the store to get to the third story, excuse me. Now, once Roman Clark made entry, and from reports, it took them about an hour. They did their best to try to get in immediately, but the flames were just too intense. So once he made entry, he started finding the children, and he said that they were everywhere. All of them were deceased. They weren't in their beds, y'all. This didn't happen while they were asleep. They were everywhere, looking for a way out of that house. Carnell died one week later at John Hopkins Bayview Medical Center from a skull fracture, burns, and other injuries. He suffered second and third degree burns over 80% of his body. The Dawson's relatives found out that he passed away as well while planning the funeral for Angela and their five children. After lighting the Dawson's house on fire, Darrell went back home to watch it burn. He also watched as the bodies were brought out and told a friend that Angela shouldn't have called the police. Investigators later found his fingerprints on the pickle jar that he used to hold the gasoline, so it didn't take long for the BCPD um, to make an arrest, and Darrell was charged with six counts of first-degree murder, and once Carnell died from his injuries, an additional charge was added. In court, he pled guilty to arson, resulting in the deaths of seven people. Mind y'all, this is a charge that carried the federal death penalty, but prosecutors accepted a plea deal to guarantee a conviction on August 27th of 2003, and Darrell was sentenced to life without parole. 
Of course, this nigga got on the motherfucking stand and started boohooing. Y'all know I got to get to cussing. He said, and I quote, I thought the only way I could pay for my actions was with my own life. I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. I will never, ever, as long as there's breath in my lungs, I will never forgive myself, end quote. To that, I say lie to somebody else, all right? Um, yeah, I'd say put that nigga under the jail if it was me. But according to the prosecutors, they spoke with relatives of the Dawson family and came to the conclusion that peace with the case was what mattered most to them. And um, Donnell Golden, uh, Angela's mother, she said, I hope and pray that this does not happen to another family. I miss my family. I hope people learn to just love one another. The Dawsons were laid to rest October 24th of 2002, and their services were carried out by Mount Pleasant Church of Ministries. They needed 30 pallbearers to carry the coffins to the hearses, and 11 city police motorcycles led a procession of more than 50 vehicles to Delaney Valley Memorial Gardens. Hours prior, though, hundreds were in attendance, including, uh, at the time, Mayor Martin O'Malley, who addressed those who committed to breaking the law by pushing gangs and drugs. The mayor said, and I quote, you think you have purchased half of us and intimidated the rest of us, but you are as foolish as you are cruel. As long as Baltimore remembers the Dawsons, we will never surrender to your hate. The fight is not over. Love and justice will have the final word, end quote. And I'm also going to quote David Adams, who wrote an article on the People's uh, Champion website. He said, after the Dawson murders, the city and community leaders sought to redevelop the Oliver community and spent a million dollars to rebuild the structure that was once the Dawson family home. Erected in its place out of tragedy rose something positive. The Dawson Safe Haven offers a program where kids, mostly from poor homes, could come after school for a snack, to play games, to do homework, and other activities designed to protect the kids in Oliver from the pervasive cultures of drugs and violence. The program is a benchmark for the community, honoring the memory of a senseless tragedy while protecting young children, ironically in the same manner that Angela Dawson sought for her kids. Members of the Dawson family that survived also tried to sue the city, y'all, for $14 million. And this lawsuit is actually, ooh, I almost started tearing up. I don't know why, like, this, this case really just, y'all, this case really got to me. Yeah, it, it got to me. Um, but yeah, the Dawson family, rightfully so, and they tried to sue the city for $14 million. Um, and this was because of the belief campaign, how they encouraged residents to report criminal activity, but didn't have no plan B for when shit hit the fan. So I do hope that y'all do um, go ahead and take a look at that lawsuit. I'll try to pin it to the show notes, y'all. Uh, so that is the end of this it did end abruptly. This is a a smaller episode for y'all after the long, lengthy shit that was Jim Jones. I just wanted to get up on here and give y'all this case because we should not forget the Dawsons. We should not forget Angela and how she died in the pursuit to protect her children from violence and criminal activity. I'll be goddamned if we if we not tell these stories that are not told on podcasts as much as they should be, right? Uh, so let me go ahead. As promised, I will be doing shout outs because y'all have been consistently streaming the pod. And for that, I am grateful. 
So Nita2g69 said, Hey Kay, you did a great job at storytelling. I enjoy and appreciate all the information that you are giving. I hope there's another season coming. Your podcast is one of my favorites and I did not mind giving a five-star review. Stay blessed. Nita, thank you so much for this review and I hope you have a wonderful new year. I am thrilled that y'all don't mind the information I give. It's important information basically that paints a better picture. I appreciate you. Adele underscore 22 said, I found you on TikTok in the honestly perfect timing. I love listening to Black woman podcasts and I needed more. Scrolled and boom, there you were. I love how it feels like we're having a one-on-one conversation. The victim, excuse me, the victims deserve to be known and you're doing just that. Thank you. Can't wait to hear more. Nah, Adele, boo, thank you. And I'm glad you feel like this is a conversation because that's exactly how it's supposed to feel. Y'all are literally my home girls. And the fellas tuning in, like, y'all my homies for real. Y'all my road dog. So I hope you have a happy new year, Adele. Mel K04 said, you sound like one of my home girls. I love your authenticity. Keep exposing the truth. You are appreciated. And to that, I say, baby, I can't do this shit without y'all. I appreciate you to the moon and back, and I hope you have a happy new year. Uh, J underscore JoJo said, I feel like I'm getting my hair done, and my stylist is telling me a story. I love it. Keep doing what you're doing. That warms my heart because I said it before, but this is exactly my goal. We are chilling and we talking about true crime and we get to honor the victims while we tell the stories. So yeah, that was my vision for Black Girl True Crime. So thank you, Jay, and I hope you have a happy new year. Ty52 from Philly said, just found this and it is one of my favorites and just sentiment, your sentiments be mine as well. Thanks, child. <laughs> I'm glad we all be on the same page. All right, because as I tell y'all these stories, I really do be flabbergasted. Somebody said I cuss too much on the pod. So I'm if y'all haven't noticed, I'm trying to tone it down a little bit, but still I'm going to say fuck. All right. So yeah, when I really be flabbergasted, confused, hurt, I hope that y'all feel those emotions with me. Uh, so I'm glad that you're here with me on the ride and happy new year, Ty. So thank y'all so much for these reviews. And as always, if you tuned in and rocked with me, you can show your support by giving a five-star review on Spotify and Apple. If you want to send me an email, please reach out to blackgirltruecrimepodcast at gmail.com. My TikTok is kesamo93 and my Insta is blackgirl underscore truecrimepodcast. I want to thank y'all for tuning in and I will catch y'all next week. Bye-bye.